Chapter Three of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Three. Mercy and love have met thee on thy road, thou wretched outcast. Wordsworth. When Gertie had had her kitten about a month, she took a violent cold from being out in the damp and rain. And Nan, fearing she should have trouble with her if she became seriously ill, bade her stay in the house and keep in the warm room where she was at work. Gertie's cough was fearful, and it would have been a great comfort to sit by the stove all day and keep warm, had it not been for her anxiety about the kitten, lest it should get lost or starve before she was well enough to be out taking care of it, or worst of all, come running into the house in search of her. The whole day passed away, however, and nothing was seen of Pussy. Towards night, the men were heard coming in to supper, just as they entered the door of the room where Nan and Gertie were, and where the coarse meal was prepared. One of them stumbled over the kitten, which had come in with them, unperceived. Cracky, what's this air? said the man, whom they all were accustomed to call Jemmy. A cat, I vow. Why, Nan, I thought you kind of hated cats. Well, taint none of mine. Drive it out, said Nan. Jemmy started to do so, but Puss, suddenly drawing back and making a circuit round his legs, sprang forward into the arms of Gertie, who was anxiously watching its fate. Whose kitten's that, Gertie? said Nan. Mine, said Gertie bravely. Well, how long have you kept cats? I should like to know, said Nan. Speak, how came you by this? The men were all looking on. Gertie was afraid of the men. They sometimes teased, and were always a source of alarm to her. She could not think of acknowledging to whom she was indebted for the gift of the kitten. She knew it would only make matters worse, for Nan had never forgiven true Flint's rough expostulation against her cruelty in beating the child for spilling the milk, and Gertie could not summon presence of mind to think of any other source to which she could ascribe the kitten's presence, or she would not have hesitated to tell a falsehood. For her very limited education had not taught her a love or habit of truth, where a lie would better serve her turn, and save her from punishment. She was silent and burst into tears. Come, said Jemmy, give us some supper, Nan, and let the gal alone till arterwards. Nan complied, ominously muttering, however. The supper was just finished, when an organ grinder struck up a tune outside the door. The men stepped out to join the crowd. Consisting chiefly of the inmates of the house, who were watching the motions of a monkey that danced in time to the music. Gertie ran to the window to look out. Delighted with the gambols of the creature, she gazed intently, until the man and monkey moved off, so intently that she did not miss the kitten, which in the meantime crept down from her arms and, springing upon the table, began to devour the remnants of the repast. The organ grinder was not out of sight when Gertie's eyes fell upon the figure of the old lamplighter coming up the street. She thought she would stay and watch him light his lamp when she was startled by a sharp and angry exclamation from Nan and turned just in time to see her snatch her darling kitten from the table. Gertie sprang forward to the rescue, jumped into a chair, and caught Nan by the arm. But she firmly pushed her back with one hand, while with the other she threw the kitten half across the room. Gertie heard a sudden splash and a piercing cry. Nan had flung the poor creature into a large vessel of steaming hot water, which stood ready for some household purpose. The little animal struggled and writhed an instant, then died in torture. 
All the fury of Gertie's nature was roused. Without hesitation, she lifted a stick of wood which lay near her, and flung it at Nan with all her strength. It was well aimed, and struck the woman on the head. The blood started from the wound the blow had given. But Nan hardly felt the blow, so greatly was she excited against the child. She sprang upon her, caught her by the shoulder, and opening the house door, thrust her out upon the sidewalk. "'You'll never darken my doors again, your imp of wickedness,' said she, as she rushed into the house, leaving the child alone in the cold, dark night. When Gertie was angry or grieved, she always cried aloud, not sobbing as many children do, but uttering a succession of piercing shrieks, until she sometimes quite exhausted her strength. When she found herself in the street, she commenced screaming, not from fear at being turned away from her only home, and left all alone at nightfall to wander about the city, and perhaps freeze before morning, for it was very cold. She did not think of herself for a moment. Horror and grief at the dreadful fate of the only thing she loved in the world entirely filled her little soul. So she crouched down against the side of the house, her face hid in her hands, unconscious of the noise she was making, and unaware of the triumph of the girl who had once thrown away her shoes, and who was watching her from the house-door opposite. Suddenly she found herself lifted up and placed on one of the rounds of Truman Flint's ladder, which still leaned against the lamp-post. True held her firmly, just high enough on the ladder to bring her face opposite his, recognized her as his old acquaintance, and asked her, in the same kind way he had used on the former occasion, what was the matter. But Gertie could only gasp and say, "'Oh, my kitten, my kitten!' "'What? The kitten I gave you? Well, have you lost it? Don't cry. There, don't cry.' "'Oh, no, not lost. Oh, poor kitty!' And Gertie began to cry louder than ever, and coughed at the same time, so dreadfully, that True was quite frightened for the child. Making every effort to soothe her, and having partially succeeded, he told her she would catch her death of cold, and she must go into the house. "'Oh, she won't let me in,' said Gertie, "'and I wouldn't go if she would.' "'Who won't let you in? Your mother?' "'No, Nan Grant.' "'Who's Nan Grant?' She's a horrid, wicked woman that drowned my kitten in violin water. But where's your mother? I hain't got none. Who do you belong to, you poor little thing? Nobody, and I've no business anywhere. But who do you live with, and who takes care of you? Oh, I lived with Nan Grant, but I hate her. I threw a stick of wood at her head, and I wished I'd killed her. Hush, hush, you mustn't say that. I'll go and speak to her. True moved towards the door, trying to draw Gertie in with him, but she resisted so forcibly that he left her outside, and walking directly into the room, where Nan was binding up her head with an old handkerchief, told her she had better call her little girl in, for she would freeze to death out there. "'She's no child of mine,' said Nan. "'She's been living here long enough. She's the worst little creature that ever lived. It's a wonder I've kept her so long. And now I hope I'll never lay eyes on her again.' And what's more, I don't mean to. She ought to be hung for breaking my head. I believe she's got an ill spirit in her, if ever anybody did have in this world. But what'll become of her? said True. It's a fearful cold night. How'd you feel, marm, if she were found to-morrow morning? I'll frizz up just on your doorstep. How'd I feel? That's your business, is it? Sposin' you take care on her yourself. You make a mighty deal of fuss about the brat. "'Carry her home, and try how you're like her.' 
"'You've been here a-talkin' to me about her once afore, "'and I tell you I won't bear a word more. "'Let other folks see to her, I say. "'I've had more in my share. "'And, as to her freezin', or dyin' anyhow, "'I'll risk her. "'Them children that comes into the world, "'anybody knows how, don't go out of it in a hurry. "'She's this city's property. "'Let em look out for her, "'and you'd better go long "'and not meddle with what don't concern you.' "'True did not wait to hear more.' He was not used to women, and an angry woman was the most formidable thing to him in the world. Nan's flashing eyes and menacing attitude were sufficient warning of the coming tempest, and he wisely hastened away before it should burst upon his head. Gertie had ceased crying when he came out, and looked up into his face with the greatest interest. "'Well,' said he, "'she says you shan't come back.' "'Oh, I'm so glad,' said Gertie. "'But where'll you go to?' "'I don't know. Perhaps I'll go with you, and see you light the lamps. "'But where'll you sleep to-night?' "'I don't know where. I haven't got any house. "'I guess I'll sleep out, where I can see the stars. "'I don't like dark places. "'But it'll be cold, won't it?' "'My goodness! You'll freeze to death, child. "'Well, what'll become of me, then?' "'The Lord only knows.' "'True looked at Gertie, in perfect wonder and distress.' He knew nothing about children, and was astonished at her simplicity. He could not leave her there such a cold night, but he hardly knew what he could do with her if he took her home, for he lived alone and was poor. But another violent coughing spell decided him at once to share with her his shelter, fire, and food, for one night at least. So he took her by the hand, saying, "'Come with me,' and Gertie ran along confidently by his side, never asking whither. True had about a dozen more lamps to light before they reached the end of the street, when his round of duty was finished. Gertie watched him light each one with as keen an interest as if that were the only object for which she was in his company, and it was only after they had reached the corner of the street and walked on for some distance without stopping that she inquired where they were going. "'Going home,' said True. "'Am I going to your home?' said Gertie. "'Yes,' said True, "'and here it is.' He opened a little gate close to the sidewalk. It led into a small and very narrow yard, which stretched along the whole length of a decent two-storied house. True lived in the back part of the house, so they went through the yard, passed by several windows and the main entrance, and keeping on to a small door in the rear, opened it and went in. Gertie was by this time trembling with the cold. Her little bare feet were quite blue from walking so far on the pavements. There was a stove in the room into which they had entered, but no fire in it. It was a large room, and looked as if it might be pretty comfortable, though it was very untidy. True made as much haste as he could to dispose of his ladder, torch, etc., in an adjoining shed, and then, bringing in a handful of wood, he lit a fire in the stove. In a few minutes there was a bright blaze, and the chilly atmosphere grew warm. Drawing an old wooden settle up to the fire, he threw his shaggy greatcoat over it, and lifting little Gertie up, he placed her gently upon the comfortable seat. He then went to work to get supper, for True was an old bachelor, and accustomed to do everything for himself. He made tea, then mixing a great mugful for Gertie, with plenty of sugar, and all his cents worth of milk, he produced from a little cupboard a loaf of bread, cut her a huge slice, and pressed her to eat and drink as much as she could for he judged well when he concluded, from her looks, that she had not always been well fed, and so much satisfaction did he feel in her evident enjoyment of the best meal she had ever had, 
that he forgot to partake of it himself, but sat watching her with a tenderness which proved that the unerring instinct of childhood had not been wanting in Gertie, when she felt, as she watched True about his work, so long before he ever spoke to her, that he was a friend of everybody, even to the most forlorn little girl in the world. Truman Flint was born and brought up in New Hampshire, but when fifteen years old, being left an orphan, he had made his way to Boston, where he supported himself for many years by whatever employment he could obtain, having been, at different times, a newspaper carrier, a cab driver, a porter, a woodcutter, indeed, a jack at all trades. And so honest, capable, and good-tempered had he always shown himself, that he everywhere won a good name, and had sometimes continued for years in the same employ. Previous to his entering upon the service in which we find him, he had been for some time a porter in a large store, owned by a wealthy and generous merchant. Being one day engaged in removing some heavy casks, he had the misfortune to be severely injured by one of them falling upon his chest. For a long time no hope was entertained of his recovering from the effects of the accident, and when he at last began to mend, his health returned so gradually that it was a year before he was able to be at work again. This sickness swallowed up the savings of years, but his late employer never allowed him to want for any comforts, provided an excellent physician, and saw that he was well taken care of. True, however, had never been the same man since. He rose up from his sickbed ten years older in constitution, and his strength so much enfeebled that he was only fit for some comparatively light employment. It was then that his kind friend and former master obtained for him the situation he now held as lamplighter, in addition to which he frequently earned considerable sums by sawing wood, shoveling snow, etc. He was now between fifty and sixty years old, a stoutly built man, with features cut in one of nature's rough moulds, but expressive of much good nature. He was naturally silent and reserved, lived much by himself, was known to but few people in the city, and had only one crony, the sexton of a neighboring church, a very old man, and one usually considered very cross-grained and uncompanionable. But we left Gertie finishing her supper, and now, when we return to her, she is stretched upon the wide settle, sound asleep, covered up with a warm blanket, and her head resting upon a pillow. True sits beside her. Her little thin hand lies in his great palm. Occasionally he draws the blanket closer round her. She breathes hard. Suddenly she gives a nervous start, then speaks quickly. Her dreams are evidently troubled. True listens intently to her words, as she exclaims, eagerly, "'Oh, don't drown my kitty!' and then again, in a voice of fear, "'Oh, she'll catch me, she'll catch me!' once more, and now her tones are touchingly plaintive and earnest. "'Dear, dear, good old man, let me stay with you. Do let me stay!' Great tears are in Truman Flint's eyes, and rolling down the furrows of his rough cheeks. He lays his great head on the pillow, and draws Gertie's little face close to his, at the same time smoothing her long, uncombed hair with his hand. He, too, is thinking aloud. What does he say? Catch you? No, she shan't. Stay with me? So you shall, I promise you, poor little birdie. All alone in this big world, and so am I. Please, God, we'll bide together. End of chapter 3